Chapter 1, starting in verse 9, says this, What do you plot against Yahweh? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. For you, from you came one who plotted evil against Yahweh, a worthless counselor. And thus says Yahweh, Though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, we thank you uh, hmm, that you give us breath, uh, that you love us, uh, that you are over us uh, and you're holding us up, uh, that there's nothing we face that you uh, have not already walked through and you're not on the other side of. There's nothing that is um, causing issues and problems in life right now that you're not more powerful than. And so as we open your word this morning, uh, Jesus, we just put our plans and we put our problems uh, in open hands for you to do as you wish. Uh, And we just want to say, as you taught us to pray, would your will be done in us as in heaven? And if you would, take a moment and pray for yourself and ask the Lord to teach you today. And if you'd be so kind, uh, pray for me that I would speak clearly and be helpful to you. Well, Father, we love you and we trust you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a couple years back, uh, St. Louis had one of their wonderful fall thunderstorms, and it took out the Bradford Pear tree in our backyard, uh, because Bradford pears don't take much to get taken out. But when it took out the Bradford pear, it also took out our back fence and our side fence. And uh, then I had this huge tree in our backyard that I didn't know what to do with, and I didn't have a chainsaw. And thankfully, uh, Anthony and his crew of disaster relief guys came uh, that morning, and in about 45 minutes, chopped up my tree and had it hauled off. And I was like, oh, all right, cool. Uh, No more tree in my backyard, but I have a fence that's laying down in our alley, and a dog that doesn't need a fence to stay put. And uh, after getting some bids for fences, realized that for someone to come repair the section of fence that was broken was about equally the cost for me to just do the manual labor of ripping the rest of the fence out and rebuilding the fence that had to have been 30 years old. And so I got the joy over the rest of that fall of ripping out a fence and building a new one. And in order to get there, I remember it was two Thanksgivings ago, I was ripping out some trees that were going to be, that were kind of in the way, but they were like roses of Sharon's and they're really just overgrown weeds they needed to go. And so I'm like trying to rip this tree out and I'm digging, I've gotten like five out at this point and I'm just doing the same thing. I'm digging around, I'm cutting the roots out, I'm kind of like wedging it over. Um, And I don't know if you've noticed, like no one really looks at me and thinks like this guy lifts. Uh, That's not really the, the, the assumption people make when they see me. Um, and my brother's about this tall, and uh, at that point was a varsity 5A Texas high school defensive backs coach. They look at him and go, oh, yeah, he lifts. And they look at me and go, you read books, don't you? Yes, yes, I do. And so I'm on tree number six, and I'm just tugging and tugging and tugging, and I can't get this tree to move, and it's the last one that I need to move in order to, like, get the auger into the ground to dig the holes to put the post in, and it won't move. And I'm trying and trying, and then Kelsey comes out and kind of tries, and I'm like, I really hope she doesn't get it out, because if she gets it out and I couldn't get it out, that's just bad for everybody, 
She doesn't get it out. And then I'm like, hey, older brother. Yeah, can, can you come try to rip this tree out? And he's like, uh, sure. And he just essentially, imagine the stand was the tree goes, boop, out. And it was one of those moments of like, I loosened it. And we get the tree out. And why do I tell you that? Because I had a plan. I was going to dig around the tree. I was going to cut the roots. I was going to force it over and then like cut out the bottom root, the tap root, and it wasn't working. And I had a problem. There was a tree that was where it didn't need to be. And I needed someone more powerful than me. And I had to admit that my brother was stronger than I have ever been. And he came and helped me. And that's what we're going to see today. Uh, that we've all got plans and we've all got problems. But God's more powerful than our plans. And God's more powerful than our problems. Because God's more powerful than us. And it's not just true of us, but it's true of everyone. Because uh, in the opening of Nahum, God is speaking to his people. He is speaking to Israel, but he's speaking about the kingdom of Assyria. That the kingdom of Assyria has come with the power and they've come with the plan. And God's go, that's cute. I'm more powerful than your plans. I'm more powerful than any problem they could cause you. And while God is talking about the kingdom of Assyria, God's talking to his people because he's reminding them at the same time, like, I'm more powerful than your plans. And I'm more powerful than your problems because I'm more powerful than you. And so that's what we're going to see this morning. And first, God's more powerful than our plans. God has more power than your plans. It opened up in verse 9. What do you plot against Yahweh? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. Talking about putting down the kingdom of Assyria. From you came one who plotted evil against Yahweh, a worthless counselor. Now that's a reference to the book of 2 Kings. We'll get into it here in a little bit. But the point of God in the beginning is he has more power than your plans. Nahum asks a rhetorical question. What do you plot against the Lord? Like, what, like, what are you really going to like plan? Are you going to connive and come up with against God? And do you really think it's going to work? He's speaking about the Assyrian Empire, the strongest power at the known world at that time. And he's saying, what you can do against God? Like, what plan do you think you can come up with that can overpower him? And the answer is, it's nothing. You cannot stand against him, and your plans can't stand against him, and they can't overcome him. And then he continues saying, when you try to make a plan against God, all that happens is your plans end up falling apart, verse 10. For they, referencing the plots that you've made against the Lord, are like entangled thorns. They're like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. Assyria has this plan to overtake uh, God's people and to continue overtaking the known world. And God says, your plan is just like a tangled mess of thorns. Like that massive extension cords that's in the corner of your basement that we don't talk about, um, that you couldn't untangle if your life depended on it, because it's just all up inside of itself, and there's no way you're finding the end of that cable. And every time you pull it, it just gets a little tighter and tighter and tighter. You all know the massive cables I'm talking about, but we're not going to talk about that because you know how to undo it. But that's your plans when you try to make a plan against the Lord. And you're just sitting there hoping that one day the magical extension cord fairy is going to come and just unravel them nightly and nicely and neatly and leave them for you. And not only are your plans a tangled mess, they're like drunk people who keep on drinking. I don't know if you've ever been around drunk people who keep on drinking. I did go to a state school and did go to football games. Uh, but they don't make sense 
and they just keep getting worse. They make everyone around them like a little awkward and a little uneasy. They stop listening to reason. Like they stopped listening to reason before the game started, probably before 9 a.m. that morning because they had been going since the night before. And eventually, literally, they just can't stand. Like fundamentally, they, they can't stand and they fall over and they pass out and it's always kind of funny. And that's what God says the plans are for the Assyrian Empire. They're a tangled mess that's just going to fall over and fall apart, and eventually they're just going to burn up like dry brush. What's the point? That when we live our lives either consciously or unconsciously, telling God what I'm going to do, when I'm going to do it, how I'm going to do it, and I don't care what you, God, think or say about it, I'm going to do what I want to do, that our plans are going to fail. That when that's our point of view towards the Lord, like I'm going to do what I want to do, when I want to do, how I want to do, that your life is going to start becoming a tangled mess. It's going to kind of end up feeling like you're just kind of stumbling around and falling apart. And eventually this grand plan that you have is just going to start burning up in front of your face. Because God has more power than your plans. And guess what? That's exactly what God has already done in the book of Kings uh, to the king of Assyria. In 2 Kings 18, the king of Assyria, he sent his army to conquer Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, and then the kingdom of northern Israel by proxy, and it didn't work out. So in 2 Kings 19, the king of Assyria, uh, this guy named Sennacherib, is plotting to take over Jerusalem again. Okay, it didn't work the first time. Let me try it again a second time. And it tells us that God not only knew the plan, But God tells the prophet Isaiah to tell the king Hezekiah, hey, the king of Assyria is making this plan against you, and there's no way that you would know about it, but I know, so I'm going to tell you. Side note, not the sermon. God knows your plans. Like, before you consciously, like, create them and put them down or tell anybody else, like, he already knows. Like, that's the point, part of the point of that story. Like, he already knows your plan. Like, you're not going to catch him off guard. You're not going to outmaneuver him. And that's what the king of Assyria tries to do. And the king of Assyria sends a messenger to the king of Israel, Hezekiah, to tell him this. And we're going to read quite a good chunk of 2 Kings, but it's just, it's, it's really fun. It'll be on the screen. 2 Kings 19. Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. This is Assyria talking to Israel. Behold, you've heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction, and shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rezef, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Where's the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, the king of Hena, the king of Iva? Translation, I'm the king of Assyria. I have conquered the known world and put down every force that stood in front of me. I will do the same to you. Surrender or die. Your God can't protect you. It hasn't worked for anybody else. Why do you think it would work for you? And in response, in 2 Kings 19, God says this. This is the word that Yahweh has spoken concerning him, the king of Assyria. She despises you. She scorns you. The virgin daughter of Zion, she wags her head Behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem, she makes fun of you. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. 
By your messengers, you've mocked the Lord, and you've said, With my many chariots, I've gone up the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon. I've felled the tallest cedars, its choicest cypress. I have so much strength. I've entered into its farthest lodging places, its most fruitful forest. There's nowhere I can't go. I dug wells and drank foreign waters, and I dried up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. I go where I want. I take what I want. Verse 25. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I plan from days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruin, while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded and become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops blighted before it's grown. But I know you're sitting down, and you're going out, and you're coming in, and you're raging against me. Because you've raged against me, and your complacency has come into my ears, I will put a hook in your nose and a bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back by the way which you came. Translation, hi, king of Assyria. I I know all the places that you've conquered. I kind of had that whole thing planned out. I'm God of the universe. I know you've planned uh, to take over these places. Uh, I know how powerful that you think you are, but let's just be clear. You have your plan, and it's kind of cute. I established my plan from eternity past before you were born, and I will use your plan to carry out my plan. And when your plan doesn't align with my plan, I'll lead you like a dog on the leash to where I want you to go. God is more powerful than your plans. Even the plans of the most powerful person in the known world. God's more powerful than your plans. It doesn't matter how powerful you think you are. He can tangle your plans. He can make them fall apart. He can burn them up in a moment. He can change them and lead you to do as he has planned. God's more powerful than your plans. And God's more powerful than your problems. God's more powerful than the problems that you make for yourself. And God's more powerful than the problems that some people make for you. Uh, I remember it was... The summer of 2015, uh, we'd been married for about nine months. Uh, I was working in a church plant in South City. Uh, Kelsey had graduated in pastor boards and was doing some PRN work at a few nursing home facilities up in North City, North County. And we were just waiting for the day uh, in July, August, uh, in August, when student loans were about to kick in. And they were about three times, uh, no, two times what we were paying for rent right then because we lived in a very, very small apartment. And... I don't know if you can do the math in your head, but uh, church plant job plus sporadic PRN hours minus impending student loan payments equals no money. To make it better, church plant job plus sporadic PRN hours minus life expenses, food, minus impending student loan payment equals debt. Um, And we've been staring this in the face for about three, four months going, I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know what we're going to do. I've got some money in savings, like we can make it a few months, but we're beginning to have the conversation of like, if you don't get a job, like what are we, like, are we moving to my, like, are we moving in with the parents? Like, is that, is that, like, is that what's happening? Um, are we moving in? Cause I, my dad will give me a job yesterday and you can go work at his hospital. Are we moving with your parents? Um, there's, there's churches down there. And I mean, your mom works at a, a, a hospital there. Like I'm sure we get figures, like what, like what are we doing? And we don't know. All we know is, like, August is coming, and, like, we're not going to make it to October. And we have this church come in. We're doing a VBS, and we have this church come in from Kentucky and help us pull it off. And it's Friday. We've got all the parents that came in from the kids, and we throw this big party. 
And the pastor pulls me aside and says, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? Which just sends Justin's like principal, Justin of the principal's office alarm off. Like, what did I do? I thought we were getting along. And so he pulls me aside. We go into the sanctuary and he says, hey, a few months back, we were called and we're talking about plans for, for this week. VBS has been great. We've had a wonderful time. We really hope it's been beneficial to you and the ministry y'all are doing here. We're like, yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for coming. And he's like, yeah, for sure. Well, we came in under budget. Oh, that's great for y'all. That's wonderful. And he's like, yeah, Um, we came in under budget. And I remember about three months ago, we were on the phone and we were talking about plans for this week. And I asked how I could pray for you. And you said, well, my wife's graduating and we've got student loans coming in and and, and we just, we just don't know how the math is going to work. And we're, we're looking at some backup plans. We just know what we're going to do. And so I've been praying for you for the last three months and we came in under budget and I just wanted you to have this. And he hands me an envelope with a check in it. And, like, I'm holding back tears at this point, um, and I've not opened it up. Uh, but he says, you know, we came in under. God gave us this money to bless you and your church. So here you go. Like, do with it what you need to do with it. And I just say thanks to Keith. And we part ways, and he walks out, and I just, like, kind of get in the corner and, like, open it up. And there's a $1,000 check, which is about going to cover the first month of loan payments. At this point, I'm, I'm definitely ugly crying. And I, like, kind of get it together, and I walk back out of the church building into the parking lot, and I see Kelsey come in from the other side. And she, like, starts, like, looking all teary-eyed, and I'm like, how do you know the conversation that I just had? And then she just, like, words the mouth from across the parking lot, like, I got the job. After 10, 12 interviews, she's finally gotten the call back, and she got the job at First Steps, and she had heard about 20 minutes ago before she drove back. And... In a matter of minutes, God, we don't, like, math doesn't work. Like, it just straight up doesn't, like, we don't know what we're doing. Like, we can't get out of this problem. Like, we made the best decisions about school that we could at the time, and we don't know how to move. Like, we, we want to be here, but this thing called student loans is a problem, and we don't know how to make money's ends meet. And in a matter of minutes, there's the call for the job offer. Here's a 1000 bucks to get you through the first month so that then she can get paid and you can have money. He's bigger than our problems. Do checks always show up in the mail? No, they do not. Like, that's my one check story. That's all I've got. I've had a lot of other money problems. I have one check story. But what I've seen over and over again is he's more powerful than my problems. He's more powerful than your problems. He's more powerful than the problems that some people create for us, and he's more powerful than the problems that sometimes we create for ourselves. In verse 12, Nahum says, Thus says Yahweh, though they are full of strength and many, they'll be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. God admits, like, the Assyrians are at full strength. Like, their army is unmatched. Their strategy can't be touched. They have no rival on the earth. The Assyrians are a problem for Israel. But they're, they're not a problem for God. The Assyrians might have power and they might be a problem, but God's still more powerful. He will cut them down, literally like the language for mow the grass. Problem solved. He'll break their yoke and burst them, literally set Israel free from their oppression. Assyria has created a real problem for Israel, but Israel also created a real problem for themselves. Did you hear God say, I have afflicted you and I will afflict you no more? Israel had caused a problem for themselves. The story of the Old Testament is that God rescues Israel out of Egypt and calls them their people because he loves them, not because they did anything. And he said, hey, this is how our relationship's going to work. 
I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to bless you. And you're going you're to trust me and worship me alone. That we're going to look like a family. And if you do this, I'm going to bless you. And if you don't, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to curse you. Uh, and just like Jonah, right? God spoke and Jonah ran. God spoke to Israel and they ran. And they said, oh, that's really cool. We actually just want your stuff, but we want to live our life our own way. And they ran and they ran and they ran and they worshiped other gods and they trusted in other kings. And God was like, hey, come back. Don't do that. Hey, come back. Don't do that. Hey, come back. Like, stop running. Like, and if you keep running, like, this is going to happen. If you keep running and you want to trust in other nations and worship the gods of the nations, then I'll let you live like the rest of the nations who worship the gods of the nations. And they keep running, and they keep running, and they keep running. And they're stubborn, just like we can be. And eventually they get to a point, and God says, okay, if that's what you really want, go for it. You want to live like the nations? Live like the nations. You want to be like people who trust in money and power and kings? All right, trust in your money and your power and your kings. Don't trust in me. And he lets them. He lets them have what they want. And they get taken off by Assyria, and they created a problem for themselves. And the Bible calls that problem sin. But God was still, still more powerful than their problem because God's still more powerful than their sin. And he comes after them even when they ran from him. The story of Jonah is the story of the Bible because the story of Jonah is the story of us, and we see it playing out here in Nahum that they ran and they ran and they ran. And even though they made the problem, God was still more gracious and more powerful than their problems. God's more powerful than your plans. God's more powerful than your problems because God's more powerful than you. He's more powerful than me. He's more powerful than Israel. He's more powerful than Assyria. He's more powerful than the most powerful nation. He is more powerful than them. And because God's more powerful than me, that means I can have peace when my plans fall apart and my problems abound. Because he is more powerful than me, and he's more powerful than my problems and more powerful than my plans. When my plans are burning up like brush, when problems are more problematic than I ever want them to admit to be, I can have peace in those because he's more powerful than both of them, and he's more powerful than me. Why? Because God's power was meant to give us peace. Verse 15, Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. God's power gives us peace. Uh, Nahum here quotes Isaiah 52, and I know he talked last week about how the Old Testament authors just, authors just kind of drop these lines of other Old Testament books. Um, Tim Mackey from the Bible Project calls it hyperlinks, like you're on a website and there's a little blue underline. Sadly, uh, the, the Bible doesn't have blue little underlines letting us know it's referencing something, but that's how it works. And here he's referencing Isaiah 52, verse 7. It says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion or, or Jerusalem, your God reigns. The declaration of good news, the declaration of peace is that God reigns, is that God has power, even when we don't. 
even when our plans are falling apart and problems are everywhere, that we find peace because he has power. Now, it's worth noting. um, If we find peace in God's power, then when we're looking to other powers, we're not going to find peace. Like, that's the logic of the, the argument. It's only in God and in God's power that we can find peace. And so if we're trusting in us, if we're trusting in money, if we're trusting in that new job, if we're trusting in anything other than God, we're not going to find peace. Maybe it's that new season. Maybe it's just getting to next year. Maybe it's just getting through whatever's going on. And then on the other side of this, like, I'll be able to breathe. And we've all been there. And we've all been on the other side of it. And there's always another thing. There's always another problem. There's always another plan that doesn't work out. And we never find peace. But when our peace is found in his power, it doesn't matter the plan. It doesn't matter the problem. Our peace isn't tied to our situations. Our peace is tied to him and what he can do in our situations. Our peace comes from God's power because God uses his power to make peace. Like, that, like that's the point. We can find peace in his power because he used his power to make peace. What is peace? Well, in Hebrew, the word is shalom. Uh, and it's where Solomon gets his name, shalomon. Uh, so the Hebrew word is shalom, and it consists of two things. It consists of the absence of conflict and the presence of human flourishing. That, that's the Hebrew concept of peace, of, of shalom. There's an absence of conflict, like wars aren't happening, problems aren't happening, but there's also thriving. Like you're growing as a human, like you have all of your needs met. You're flourishing as a family, as a person, as a society. That's peace in the biblical sense. It's not just the absence of problems. It's the presence of thriving. And that's what God came to do. And we find in the scriptures that shalom, this idea of peace, is woven into the fabrics of creation. That God made a world in peace. You read the first two chapters of Genesis. Like there was chaos and darkness, like Hebrew language for like, problem. Like utter distractions, problems, plans falling apart. And he steps into that and he makes a world with structure and order that life might flourish and grow. He makes a world abounding in shalom where there's an absence of conflict, an absence of chaos, and a presence of human flourishing. That's what God did in creation. He made a world in peace. But just like Jonah, just like Israel, Adam and Eve, our first parents, sinned and peace vanished. Peace with God and man was severed. But then God not only created a world in peace, he redeemed a world for peace. The quote from Isaiah 52 flows right into Isaiah 53, where God foretold the coming of a servant who would suffer in our place. That God prophesied of one who would come to bear our sins and our transgressions, to die the death that we deserve so that we might benefit from the life that he lived. It says in verse 4 of 53, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And when Isaiah wrote this, there weren't chapter breaks. And so in 52, when he's writing about 
behold the message of good news and publishing peace that our God reigns, how is he going to reign? Well, he's going to send a servant that's going to suffer. And he's going to take the war and he's going to take the chaos and he's going to take the problems and he's going to take the death. And he's going to make peace by entering into our conflict and overcoming it. That's the good news, that our God is going to reign by coming and dying, that he might be the death of death and rise again to bring peace to the whole world. God used his power for our peace, our sins, our grief, our pain, our affliction that caused all kinds of problems. Sin that ruins all kinds of plans because sin ruins us. But God stepped into our sin. He stepped into our grief. He stepped into our pain and he took it on himself. Why? That he might give us peace. God didn't use his power for himself. He could have. He used it for us. Like he didn't just go, well, that's your problem. Sorry about it. I made the world great. Don't you remember? And you're the one that messed it up. So figure it out and live with the consequences. I'm all powerful. You messed it up. I made everything great for you. And look where you're at. No, he stepped into the pain. He didn't use his power to elevate himself. He actually used his power to humiliate himself that he might elevate us with him. That's the good news. That's how peace comes. Yes, is God powerful? Yeah. And what we saw last week is that he not only is he powerful, but he's also good. And in his goodness, he uses his power for us and for our good. We talked about it last week. God is good, which means God can be just and God can be loving, but God's also powerful. And so because he's good, he uses his power rightly. And because he's powerful, he can carry out goodness. Uh, it's Uncle Ben, right? In the Toby, the, the only Spider-Man movie that matters with Toby Maguire. Amen, that's right. Uncle Ben told him, with great power comes great responsibility. That he had this ability, he had this power. And what does Spider-Man do? Does he just use it to get Mary Jane? A little bit. But if it ultimately, no. Let's not talk about Spider-Man 3. It got real weird. But in Spider-Man 1, he uses this power for the good of New York City, for the good of the people. He doesn't just use it for himself. He tries that for a little while, and it just kind of doesn't work out for Toby. But when he uses the power for the good of others, peace reigns. And that's what God did for us. He had power, and he had goodness, and he stepped into our problems that he might bring us peace so that we can trust him when our plans fall apart. We can trust him when the problems are too much for us to handle. We can trust him when we can admit, God, I don't have power to do what needs to be done here because my plans are falling apart and the problem is too big for me to handle. So I want to trust you. And it's in trusting him and in his power that we find peace. And that's where Nahum 1 ends. God is powerful. He's more powerful than your plans. He's more powerful than your problems because he's more powerful than you. And the good news is that God uses power to give us peace. And we all want it, right? Like we all want the absence of conflict. Some of us avoid it and some of us run to it. We all want the presence of flourishing. Like we all want us in the world around us and the people that we love to grow and to flourish under God and just have great lives. Like we all want peace. Like the world wants peace. And the good news is that peace came for you. 
Because peace isn't a place. Peace isn't a circumstance. Peace is a person, and his name is Jesus. And he's the one that took your grief to give you peace. And so if you're here today and and your plans are falling apart, one, welcome to the table. (laughs) If you're here today and there's problems that you can't fix, welcome to the table. (laughs) If you're here today and maybe just even to yourself, because you don't want to tell anybody yet, you don't have power enough to, like, deal with the problem. You can't pull the tree out of the ground. That you need someone else who's stronger than you. Welcome to the table. And the gospel isn't that Jesus came to make your plans happen and that Jesus came to deal with all of, you know, the problems of your life so that you could have a good life. The gospel is that Jesus came for our greatest problem, that we were at war with God. And there was a problem between us and humanity because there was a problem between us and God. And is trusting in Jesus going to make all of your plans work and all your problems go away? No. Like, just look at Jesus. Like, he ended up being murdered and executed. Like, trusting in Jesus doesn't mean that everything magically works out in this life. Trusting in Jesus means that we can have peace in the midst of this life because we know he's more powerful than it. And so if you want peace in plans that are falling apart, if you want peace in problems abounding that you don't know how to get out of. It's not on the other side. It's not in plan F. Peace is found in a person. Peace is found in Jesus. And all you have to do to find peace is ask. So will you trust him? Because he's powerful and he's good. And will you ask him, God, when I, I, will you give me peace? Because you're powerful in the midst of this. Let's pray. Jesus, forgive us for all the things that we trust in that aren't you. For the people and the circumstances and the plans that we walked in here just saying, if, if this works out, if this person signs off on this thing, if, if we can just get along, if X, Y, or Z would just happen life would be better, that then I could breathe, then I could find comfort. And by the kindness of your spirit, would you just, again, just bring us to a place of repentance that's honest, God, I'm trusting in this to find peace. I'm trusting in this to be more powerful than me, and I need you. And I need you. And would you remind us again that there's grace, not just for the mistakes of yesterday, but for the mistakes and the sins of right now. That there's not just grace for everyone else in this room, that there's grace for me. There's grace for us. So God, help us to trust you. Help us to find peace in you when everything else is falling apart. I pray in Jesus' name.